Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast of the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Nate Holdren about his book, Injury Impoverished, Workplace Accidents, Capitalism, and Law in the Progressive Air, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Dr. Holdren is an assistant professor at Drake University. Injury Impoverished looks at the history of U.S. workplace injuries in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as the workers, employers, and reformers attempted to tackle the drastically high rates of workplace injuries and deaths. The nation passed a number of compensation laws that fundamentally changed how the law approached workplace injuries. Dr. Holdren, in examining the history, illuminates the many shortcomings of these laws and how the law meant to help employees were often used to do the exact opposite. At the heart of Dr. Holdren's study is whether or not the economy and the legal system was interested in and able to do justice for workers. Dr. Holdren, welcome to the program. Thank you, Derek. I'm excited to be here. So I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners how you came to this topic, why you decided to study it? Absolutely. So um, I sideways, I, I I've, I've sort of wound my way here. Um, I initially planned to be, I trained as a women's and gender historian. And um, I took a, a legal history research seminar. And as a part of that, I happened to find a body of primary sources about um, women industrial workers in Minnesota who had suffered workplace injuries. So I found these 10 state Supreme Court cases involving injuries to women industrial workers. And it was just, just this voluminous body of material. It was, um, there were 10 women's cases and it was 3000 pages of stuff. And it had lots of rich detail about what their working lives were like and about, um, what the injuries were like and about like just all of these accounts of, of like a window into the workplace. And so my first plan had been to write a kind of social history of women industrial workers, um, probably in Minnesota, using these cases as just my window into that world. And it took me a really long time in retrospect to realize that you don't go to court and just tell your life story. You, um, you're in court talking in specific ways because you're in court. And so I realized pretty late that, oh, I really need to think more about the law. And so um, then the project project became um, a study of concepts of gender in the law and what that meant in the lives of ordinary women workers, um, wage workers. And I was going to stop in 1909 because I knew that the law changed in 1910 with when workers' comp laws started. I didn't really know anything about workers' comp. I wasn't interested in it. I wanted to write about women industrial workers. So I was all set to do that. That was the plan. And um, then I began the research for it. And I was in Wisconsin at the Wisconsin State Historical Society. And um, I had this kind of archival moment. There's this, this joke that historians write plans and then they dissolve on contact with archives. And that's what happened. So I was in the archives in, in Madison and the... Historical Society had two boxes of records from the Wisconsin State Industrial Commission. And 
the index to those boxes had been lost. They had been very well organized by the Industrial Commission, but in these very numbered files with only a little bit of stuff in each folder. But the index had been lost and they were just entirely random. And so I just read everything in both boxes. And I'm really lucky the index was lost because I would not have written my book otherwise. And I found um, this exchange of letters from 1931 um, where uh, a paper mill was writing to the Wisconsin Industrial Commission saying, we have this employee who um, has a health condition and, he, and our doctor examined him. And, he, and the doctor says if he gets hurt, um, he'll also have a heart attack probably because of the injury from the, the trauma of the injury. And that's going to make him more expensive to, to uh, that'll make his injury more expensive. So you should fire him. And they, they wrote to the Industrial Commission saying, hey, what do you recommend? And, um, and I had no frame of reference to make sense of that. And so I thought, oh, this is a cool footnote for the final chapter when I say I'm not going to talk about workers' comp. I just need to understand what it means. And then over the coming days, I just couldn't make sense of it. Um, and later, um, I met Sarah Rose, who published a great book called No Right to Be Idle. And Sarah has a great chapter on workers' comp, and Sarah could make sense of this. But um, at the time, I couldn't find anything that made sense of it. And so the whole project then became, how do I understand why this happened? And also just like like a sleuthing, kind of like a detective, like how often was this? Like, was this the only case where a guy was, a guy's job was threatened because of his uh, being disabled in medical examinations under workers' comp laws? Or were there, were there others like this? And did anyone know about this? And so I just wanted to understand how widespread it was, why it happened, just kind of factually. So that became the whole part of the whole heart of the, my dissertation. And I had a beginning bit where I talked about the materials from those women's lawsuits. Um, and then when I finished the dissertation and I was thinking about the book, I, um, I had uh, two thoughts. And the one was that there were moments when the dissertation got kind of dry um, in the, in the legal details and the kind of details of how the economy worked. And that really bothered me because there were all of, you know, these are these horrible stories of people getting hurt. And, and I didn't want to write about that in a boring way that felt kind of wrong. And so I wanted the book to kind of voice the horror that I kept feeling while I was reading about this stuff and, and make the reader kind of feel that. And also kind of make the, I had started to think about like how strange it is that these awful events happen. And then the law treats them as boring or insurance treats them as boring and so on. I wanted to kind of both draw out how horrible these actions were and also draw out like that I draw out that like um, not only are these horrible things happening, but there's this sort of second horrible thing happening symbolically where these awful events are treated as dull. And so um, and then the other thing I had wanted to do in the book was like, what, what is this? What does this mean? Why does this matter? And so in moving from the dissertation of the book, I did a lot of new writing, like it's almost all new writing. But I did very little new research. It was mostly interpretive and reorganization, and so um, that's how I ended up writing writing the book. And um, I will say this is my first book, and I'm the first person in my family to go to college, so I didn't have a lot of frame of reference. I found the experience of the book really transformative. Like I'm a different person coming on the other side of it, and it hasn't been what I expected. Like I sort of thought that I would finish the book and I would have a clear sense of what I said all the time in my head. Like that my book would just live in my head. And it's actually like the book is much bigger than my brain can hold. And so I continue to hear people remind me of things I said, like I was looking at the, you know, before our conversation, I was like, Oh yeah, I did write about that. 
And also people find things in the book that I'm like, yeah, no, I did. I did say that that is a theme. I didn't, I had forgotten. I said that, or I was only sort of conscious because um, a lot of the, I was the other thing I'll say is a lot of the, what I was doing was strongly felt. And I was trying to figure out what the intellectual content was of these strong kind of gut level intuitions that were very strongly steering the process. And, um, so, uh, yeah, that's how I wrote it. And, um, and so also you said, why did I decide to study it? It only felt, it only sort of felt like a decision. Like I clearly I did it and I decided it, but it really very early on felt like a thing that was happening to me. Like I had to know, I felt compelled more than I felt like I made choices. And I think it's sort of interesting thinking about how, um, and, you know, it's definitely, I think, very common for historians when they finish writing a book or, or really anything, it's, as you said, it's just like, oh, yeah, I did write that because there's so <laughs> much that you um, that historians in general just pack into their work. And there's so much um, sort of personal histories in this book, so much sort of analysis going on that, yeah, there's a lot I, I've been thinking about it since I finished the book about music in a way, like as an analogy of like, you know, I'm, I'm not a very good musician, but like if you write a song in like a minor key, that's like a minor key kind of slow bluesy rock song. And then you want to have like an up tempo, like kind of major key pop bit in the middle. Like it just doesn't fit. Like there's a, <clears throat> an objectivity to the song that kind of constrains you that you, you can only make certain, cho- only certain choices only make sense. And, um, and maybe that's, I'm not really a good musician. Maybe that's obvious to musicians, better musicians. But like, I was surprised by how quickly it started to feel like my book had this kind of life of its own that I needed to figure out how to do things that fit within it, um, which was cool. I and mean, again, it was book writing was not what I expected it to be. It was very cool. And so in the beginning of the of your book, you say that your study is about injuries and abstractions. And so what exactly does that mean? Sure. Well, so the injury, I think hopefully is, is sort of straightforward. There are concrete, real human people who get hurt really bad. Maybe it's not actually that straightforward. Now I'm thinking about it. There are concrete, real human people who get hurt really badly. And well, I want to sort of, let's start there and talk about that. And then those people um, come into various legal and policy and economic um, and cultural contexts that um, talk about things like responsibility and predictability and risk and um, premiums. And so these like very dry um, kind of bloodless on the face of it, kind of dull concepts. Um, And I wanted to sort of talk about how in the life of injured people and in the legal life of, of injury, those two things are, are tied together. And so why is it that someone gets hurt and then the conversation is immediately, well, you're going to get paid two thirds of what your wage rate was. What was your wage rate? Like there's, that's such a strange, culturally, I think such a strange activity um, you know, if you imagine, like, if you if you if you look out your window and you see a little kid fall over on their bike and like scrape their face on the ground, and you're like, "Oh, let me hang on, I'm going to pause the podcast, I'm going to run out there, I got to help my neighbor kid," you're not going to be like, "Son, what's your hourly? You know, what's your hourly wage?" You know, you're going to be like, "Hey, let me help you. Like, are you okay?" You know, there's like a human response, and that sort of human response just isn't present in a lot of the 
big organizing concepts of how institutions respond to these intense moments of you know, brutality and human human vulnerability. So I wanted to, to sort of pull those together and say this is this is these are a package deal currently under existing institutions. The other thing that I sort of ended up doing is that the concept, like what an injury is actually is itself uh, more complicated than it, than it first seems. So like um, I talk about this a little bit um, in the introduction of the book where if a, a, a person loses all their fingers on both hands, like what, what did they actually lose? And it's easy to talk about that. Oh, well, 10 fingers. And the law is like, oh, well, you know, six months of pay. And so it's like this gives this really clear pat, yes or no, kind of closed question kind of answer. Yeah. But like, you know, what what does it mean to lose 10 fingers? And like, do you have the use of your hands? Like, do you have, there's like a bunch of factual questions that come from like, do you have chronic pain? Um, were you a guitar player? Did you like to cook? Did you like to sew? Like, what did you like to do? Um, were you a piano player? And so what does that mean in your life? And then like, how does that shape how you think of yourself now? How does that shape your relationships? And also like um, a lot of the injuries I looked at were not like a, a rock falls and someone gets a, a limb shorn off. A lot of them were like <clears throat> much more protracted. Like someone gets caught in a machine and is trapped for a long time. And then while well, another person tries to take the machine apart to get them out. So there's this long duration of suffering. And a lot of the people remain conscious the whole time. So there's trauma with that. And then later through the medical process, their hands are, their you know, parts, body parts are often in order to save the hand, they have to amputate these fingers because they don't want people to get gangrene and so on. And um, like, it's not like a finger that's caught in the machine. It's a person who's caught by their finger. So there's like this way of, of framing injury as like a distinction between a person and their body. And people are not reducible to their bodies, but like our bodies are part of who we are. And so this these processes of abstractions also kind of conceptually pull apart. Like, yeah, this there was a hand like oh, and it's not quite this extreme, but it's almost like, oh, a hand was lost today. It's like it wasn't a hand lost today. A human being suffered a terrible trauma. So that was what I was trying to do is to really juxtapose the, 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 the awful harms and traumas with this ways of talking and thinking about it that really made the trauma not visible and then sort of circle back to injuries and go, this is actually much more complex than we might think it is. The losses are actually even bigger. Like for a sympathetic reader who's like, yeah, that person got their fingers torn off. That's awful. I saw, I'm, I'm with that. I sympathize with that worker. I want to be like, yeah, me too. But there's, if we think more about it, there's actually the loss is much larger than than even our initial sympathetic response um, shows. And one of the things that you sort of going off of this that is sort of a major theme in your book is um, how these sort of the these injuries and the sort of relationship between people and their bodies becomes commodified over time and you sort of look at the relationship between commodification and morality when it comes to especially early injury law and so what is going on there what why is this such an important theme for the study of you know workplace injuries yeah i, I do spend a lot of time on that so um <clears throat> I, I, I try to be clear in the book that i think that the book is really about 
legal, well, one of the things the book's about is about legal shortcomings. So people are in moments of terrible need and vulnerability, and they are failed by institutions and by people more powerful than them. So this is a, a criticize failures kinds of book. And I tried to be clear that I was focusing on workers' comp because workers' compensation laws won out and they still exist today. But it's not like I tried to not be nostalgic. Like it's not like, oh, this other prior way of doing things was better. I tried to more just say, look, there was one set of ways of failing injured workers. And then workers' comp laws come in and there's this reorganization of these processes that still fundamentally continue to fail injured people's humanity. And so, um, but I think the juxtaposition is illuminating because it helped like the two two sets of systems help shed light on each other. So prior to workers' comp, if someone got hurt in a workplace, their only legal avenue was to file a lawsuit. It's like if you're um, you know, if you rent a house and the roof collapses, you're gonna sue your landlord if you get hurt. Um, that's your only real um, legal avenue. You can hope the landlord's generous and work it out privately, threaten to sue and work it out privately in the shadow of the law, or you Enter, enter legal proceedings which of lawsuits. And that's how workplace injuries were in the U.S. prior to 1910. With, there's, a, there's a couple of very uh, wonky exceptions with federal employees, but for the most, for overwhelming majority of workers, all you can really do is sue. And workers lost all the time. And um, when they won, they often got just peanuts. Um, so it was terrible. And that becomes the subject of lots of criticism, which is part of where workers' comp laws come out of that criticism of the corporate system. Um, on the road to workers' comp law, some of that criticism leads to laws that make it a little bit easier to sue. And there's more public talk. You know, like right now, there's more talk about the opioid crisis. There's this talk in the early 20th century in, in the kind of public sphere about this injury crisis. And um, employers believe um, that because of that talk, Jurors are, are unsympathetic to employers and are prone to be sympathetic to employees. And the court system in the early 20th century doesn't, doesn't keep, didn't keep good statistical records on itself. So it's hard to know, uh, pin down exactly what's going on in the, the big picture. Um, but employers believed, certainly, that juries were finding in favor of injured workers in lawsuits a little more often and that there were periodically these really big payouts. So like I said, most workers lose. When they win, they usually get peanuts. But I found these cases of people getting like losing one hand and getting $15,000, which adjusted for inflation in 2021, that would be like $370,000, something like that. And so there are these, these more and more often in the view of employers and, and some reformers, these really big payouts, which are incredibly economically disruptive. And so... Um, there's this call to say, boy, this is this court system is really unstable. Let's bring in workers' comp, which will stabilize everything. And there's a number of actors who make that claim for a bunch of reasons. And some of them are, I'm sort of more sympathetic to some of them than I am to others. Um, some of them are driven by clear concerns with justice and the well-being of working people. Um, some of them are clearly not driven by that. But um, one of the reasons, that I'm, and, and so workers' comp then it cr produces this very amoral system that's um, the payout, everybody's going to get a payout, and the payout's going to be based on pre-injury wages and a percentage of those wages. The system prior to that um, was organized very differently conceptually, and workers' comp system is, is partly a response to that court system saying, we're not going to do the stuff that happened in the court system. 
So the litigation-based system prior to workers' comp, um, you could claim that you were harmed when you got hurt um, and you were wronged. And, um, and, there were, and it was hard to do that for a bunch of, bunch of legal reasons. Um, specific legal doctrines made it hard to do that. But if someone could clear the bar and say, yes, I've not only been, I'm not only hurt, but I was, I'm wrongfully hurt. Um, they could claim uh, kind of various kinds of moral meanings. So like um, I suffered pain. Um, well, the harm itself is, is, is morally coded in the, in the lawsuit based system. Um, so I shouldn't have been hurt in the first place. Um, and workers comp, there's no sense of that, that falls out entirely. So in the court system, there's the court in the, the lawsuit based system. There's only, there's a, a first conversation that says, were you wronged by this or not? So there's already moral deliberation from the jump. And then for anybody who clears that bar, there's then a series of additional kind of moral deliberations. Like, um, I, I suffered tremendous pain. So that's one of the wrongs that I suffered. Um, I am, I believe that I've been disfigured and, and people won't want to marry me. So there's a kind of deliberation on the moral meaning of, of, of physical appearance and the social meaning of that. And, um, people can say things like, I, uh, I used to play piano. That meant something to me. I can't do that anymore. I can't dress myself. I feel vulnerable now and, and, and helpless. And I, and that's kinds of wrong. And so there's this whole world of kinds of harms and they're organized in two basic ways. One's called pecuniary harms, which are ones that are easy to put a dollar value on. You know, like I was wearing my watch and, and my, my arm got torn off and my, my, my watch was destroyed. So I'm owed my wages and the value of the watch or something like that. So it's kind of clear dollar value harms. And then there's um, non-pecuniary harms, which are things like I feel unlovable. I can't sleep anymore. I was in the machine for an hour suffering. You know, what's, what's the dollar? There's, we don't have a conversion rate. What's the dollar value of an hour of pain? That just, that doesn't exist. And so these moral, I call them moral, but these, these amorphous, but real harms become the subject of deliberation in, in the lawsuit based system. And it makes judges and treatise writers really uncomfortable. They talk a lot about this, like, Hey, we're giving money for these things that don't have prices. What are we doing? And, um, all of that just falls out under workers' comp. And so what workers' comp does is it raises the floor. It says everybody's going to get, the vast majority of people are going to get some money when they get hurt, but and it drops the ceiling dramatically. So there's no more $15,000, you know, inflation-adjusted $375,000 payout. Um, and I, I call that in the book, I call that moral thinning because it narrows the meaning of the injury. What happens when you get hurt? You get paid two-thirds of your weekly wage, um, you know, not, not including overtime, and how long you'll get it for, we can look it up in a table. If you're out of work for a year, you'll get it for this long. If you're out of work for 10 years, you'll get it for that long. And so it becomes this very regularized process that's very predictable and there's no conflict. It's also the lawsuit-based system is, is it's, we have an adversarial legal system in the United States. So it's two parties duking it out, exchanging different justice claims and saying, I was wronged. I shouldn't have been. I suffered awfully. Look at these this terrible employer and what they did. And then the employer's attorney saying, you weren't wrong, you were drunk. This is your fault. So that there's these exchange of moral arguments. And all of that just falls out. And I argue that in the lawsuit-based system, what's going on are a series of very unstable processes for converting moral claims into dollar amounts in ways that make 
judges and legal treatise writers really uncomfortable in ways that are really unpredictable. So juries give wildly divergent outcomes. Um, and so I talk about that as a kind of relationship between morality and commodification. And, um, and as I said, the book is about legal shortcomings. And I do see this lawsuit-based system as also falling short, but it falls short in a very differently organized way that I think sheds light on how workers' comp falls short in a, in a very particular kind of way. And my hope with that has, has been that spending time in this lawsuit-based system and the history of that maybe kind of denaturalizes workers' comp and be like, oh, there's, there were a bunch of choices here that were made. This institution doesn't have to be this way. Um, so that was the that was the kind of the link there that I was making between morality and commodification. And also, I wanted to just raise a fundamental question of, you know, what do we think about? What, you know, reader, what do you think about um, the exchange of dollars for pain and the exchange of money for lives? And uh, that we say that we don't, we don't believe that. You can't put a price on life as a thing that people will say a lot. But um, everyday institutions put prices on lives. Um, I have a friend who used to work for the highway system in Washington State. And he was like, yeah, we just got the new contract. They think there eight guys are going to die on this project. There's a million dollar budget item to pay for those costs. And then we moved on to planning how much, how many cones we need for the project. So it's just this kind of very straightforward. There's a price on a there's a price on eight guys' lives, a million bucks, because that's what it'll cost. Here's the price on barrels, another million bucks. Here's the price on paint, another million bucks. And so I wanted to kind of also for the book to call attention to that and say, what do you think about that, reader? I think it's unsettling. And so when thinking about the choices that go into creating a system, as you were just talking about, that, you know, we have this one system that, uh, as you said, is failing people on a ver- for a variety of reasons. But we switch to the system that, you know, is, you know, somewhat regular, regularized, um, but is commodifying people's bodies and everything like that. Um And as you said, there's choices that are being made to create this system. And you look at when it comes to reforming injury law, there's sort of three different perspectives and approaches to this that um, reformers take. And so what are those three different approaches and what is the relationship between them? And why is it sort of important that we, you know, know what these different approaches are um, when it comes to studying this history. Thank you for that. I, I wanted to say something you said made something click in my head. I wanted to real quickly revisit your prior question of, you know, that I say that it falls short for a variety of reasons. Um, that's part of why the lawsuit-based system is in the book, is I think that the lawsuit-based system helps make clear additional reasons of of why and how different uh, institutional responses to injury fall short. So I wanted the book to kind of make readers attuned to a larger sense of inhumanity than they might not have. Then again, I was talking about this with injury that they might have a sympathetic reader is like, wow, I sympathize with that injured person. And I wanted the book to say good, but actually the loss is even bigger than you might think. And I want, that's part of the point of that. The stuff on morality in the, in the lawsuit based system is to say there are, you might have two reasons in mind why this is awful, reader. Great. I want to show that this thinking about this two different systems, juxtaposing them, help to see there's actually like six additional reasons. You kind of see the full spectrum of loss, so to speak. So, in, and that fits with these three different approaches that I talked about, is because these different approaches I sort of value, evaluate them in how capacious they are 
in their understanding of injury or how narrow they are. And so the, the first one that I talk about, and these are the people I'm most sympathetic to, and I really feel for these folks, are um, muckraking journalists and uh, social scientists and academics who are trying to make a difference in the world by documenting injuries and raising a ruckus. I mean, this is terrible. Something has to be done. And um, one of them is Crystal Eastman, who's an early social scientist and attorney and a socialist and an incredible activist. And she um, writes this book called Work Accidents in the Law. that's um, mostly focused on steelworkers. And in writing the book, she spends lots of time in the homes of injured steelworkers or in the homes of families where a steelworker was killed at work. And so she has a very strong sense of the full spectrum of loss. Um, and I'm very sympathetic to her. Um, and she becomes very, very focused on the poverty that results and the hardship that results after injury. Um, and she's spent so much time in, so someone gets hurt or a loved one dies and there's all the trauma and existential guilt or whatever. I mean, there's all the kind of intangible things that go with that. But also that person doesn't have money anymore. Their their kids are going to go hungry. Um, And in the early 20th century, there's really not anything like the welfare system we have now, which is still really terrible in 2021. Um, And so she is sort of encounters these all the awfulness of injury and then the awfulness of the financial consequences of injury. And she ends up really pushing heavily on the financial consequence side and saying, we need to, it's a, a travesty that somebody gets hurt or dies and then their kids go hungry and have to leave school and go to work in, in factories. Like that's unacceptable. Um, we need to do something to, support these people financially. And she's right about that. Absolutely. Um, and she has a strong sense of the, the full spectrum of loss as well, but her, the emphasis of her work and the way it gets taken up and the, the sort of effects of her work are more on the kind of economic side. I call it the distributive side in the book, um, of making sure injured vulnerable people get, get some financial support. And, and, and so that's the one kind of strain of reformers I talk about are people who are coming from a good place and who focus heavily on financial support for the injured. The second strain that I talk about are people who I'm um, much less sympathetic to and who are much more interested in, in social order and avoiding disorder and avoiding unrest. So there's a conversation that says, well, Hey, maybe injuries, uh, maybe injury law as it's currently organized is promoting strikes. Like we want to, we want to have peaceful industrial relations. Let's keep all the gears of the machinery turning with as minimal disruption as possible. And there's this um, uh, sociologist from the, the University of Chicago. Um, I, I know it's shocking that someone from the University of Chicago that does terrible things in the world, but it happened once. And uh, this sociologist from the University of Chicago uh, named Charles Henderson, who um, gives these speeches, and he, he's part of a commission in Illinois on, on these issues. And he gives his speech where he's he's just terrible racist eugenicist. He's talking about how you know degenerates need to be just put somewhere and painlessly bred out. We're not going to kill them. We just won't let them breed. Um, and you know, in this eugenics rhetoric, he's like, you know, uh, you know, immigrants are more likely to be degenerates, and and the more immigrants come to the U.S., the more degenerate the national stock will be. So we can't have immigration. And then that's his basis for supporting workers comp he's like workers comp is 
is necessary because when someone gets hurt, they don't have any money, the family falls apart, and then they don't raise tomorrow's workers, right? And so then in order to have more workers, the country has to import foreign-born workers who are more likely to be degenerates. Therefore, in order to... So he makes this racist, eugenicist argument um, in this sort of, we want an orderly society argument in favor of the same basic legislation that the the of the reformers who I like were, were in favor of. So there's just different reasons to want to support injured families. Um, and then the third perspective that I talk about are um, large um, fixed capital intensive, you know, machinery intensive uh, manufacturing enterprises and their trade associations that they belong to. And they put forward a vision of, of injury competition as well. And uh, which also centers on um, money for the injured. And for them, what they want is an escape from the court system. Because like I said, the, before the court system was getting more, they thought it was getting more volatile. There's big payouts periodically. Um, and this is partly a product, this third perspective is partly a product of some things that happened in the 1890s. So um, Naomi Lamoureux has a great book. Uh, I forget the title. I think it's called just the great merger movement, but it's, it, there's a series of, of mergers and, and, uh, um, bankruptcies and so on in the 1890s. So that, um, by the end of the 1890s, there were fewer companies and the average company is much, much larger. And that is incredibly significant. Um, because if you, if you think about the law of large numbers, so if, if I own a, an industrial laundry, some of the, the women I talk about in the book in the first chapter who got hurt working industrial laundries, running ironing machines. If I own an industrial laundry and the people who run the ironing machines, on average, one person in a thousand will get hurt every year. If I hire, if I uh, employ a hundred people, I'll have one terrible accident every 10 years. So I can sort of, I can, t- I can roll the dice on that and not know it and not have to worry about it. If um, I am U.S. Steel, or if I'm a, you know, uh, the Pullman Corporation, who I talk a lot about, or you know, I'm a, a really large manufacturer, and I'm I'm employing thirty five thousand people, not a hundred people. Well, then it's not going to be ten years when there's a fatal accident at a, at a rate of one accident per thousand people. Um, it'll be thirty five accidents a year, and so the larger the numbers of people employed by an employer. The, the less it becomes a matter of chance and it more becomes a matter of certainty. And these large companies, because they're so big, in order to run a really large company, well, we were talking about this about my about books, and it becomes more than you can keep in your head as you grow and you write more ambitious things as a writer. You have to have be more organized to keep track of it because you can't remember it all. The same thing happens with businesses. So if I'm a, employing 10 people, I can just remember everything. If I'm a, the head of a company employing 35,000 people. I can't remember everything. I need professional help. I need administration. I need administration. I need human resources departments. And so in order, just in order to operate at those large scales, those companies had to develop this, um, these bureaus internally that understood the company's operations. And so these companies have a lot more information about themselves. They're in a way sort of more self-aware than smaller companies were. They're not, so big companies are not just large, small companies. They're a very different kind of organism. And so they not only are going to have injuries as a matter of certainty because they have so many employees, they're also going to know what's going on a lot more. And so those companies, as they're getting bigger and there's these 
early HR departments are developing and their legal departments are watching very closely what's happening in lawsuits with injuries and so on. There's a clamor of them saying, hey, this is a real threat to our operations. If we have 35 of these major accidents every year and there's a chance that one of them could pay out $350,000, inflation-adjusted terms, um, that's a huge problem. And these companies are also, because they have high, lots of machinery, they have very high fixed costs. And so they don't, they're, they're very thrown by disruption. So if um, I have, if I run a landscaping business and I have 10 people just mow lawns and we get rained out, you know, I'm, I've, I've lost the wages for those folks. That's all. If I own, if I'm Facebook and I own a server farm, it's like a billion dollars in machinery and the power goes out um, and that server farm can't be used for a day. I now have a billion dollars worth of equipment sitting idle depreciating and not making me any money. And so there's this strong sense that any disruption is going to cost money on the part of these big companies. And so they want to eliminate any source of disruption. And so what they want out of workers' comp is straightforward um, handling of injuries so we can plan for it. We know there'll probably be 35 injuries a year. How much are those going to cost us? We'll just put the money aside. It's like I said about my friend who worked for the Washington State Highway Department, you know, saying, well, all right, it'll be eight guys who are going to die. That's a million bucks. Cool. We got a million bucks. We put that money in the account, moving on. So that's the third perspective is essentially people who want people in business and trade associations, trade associations who want to reduce disruptions and they want injury to become budgetable. And those are the three kind of main perspectives that I look at. And workers' comp kind of bubbles up out of the convergence of those three perspectives. And um, there's some really good people involved in all that. There are some people who I don't think are particularly good people. But what we get, I argue, in the book is, is sort of a lowest common denominator among those perspectives. And so that's sort of the why I think the ram why that matters is that they end up with really good people sort of getting into bed with people who are who they really clearly don't sympathize with, and yet they agree on the same piece of legislation in ways that I think should give us pause. And so we eventually get to, you know, the creation of these compensation laws that, you know, as you're saying, are for a variety of reasons for from a variety of people supported and they are in theory supposed to help workers and yet as you show they as the previous system fail for a variety of reasons and one of these as you show is that they often leave out disabled employees and so how are they leaving out disabled employees and what were the ramifications for you know, this exclusion of this class of workers. Absolutely. So um, again, I want to also hype Sarah Rose's book, No Right to Be Idle, which is all about workers and disability. Um, And it came out kind of late while I was writing mine. So I engage it, but it's a really illuminating study. And one of the things that her book shows, um, and that I found some examples of as well, is that um, disability is very, very common in society. And it's very, very common it, and it tracks closely with class. Um, so the, the ProPublica just did a, a, a report on this about COVID uh, like a couple of weeks ago, that um, the counties that are have the highest rates of vaccination in the United States are the wealthiest. And they're also the counties, because wealth correlates with health, that have the, the fewest number of, of the most vulnerable. And the flip side of that is the counties that are doing the worst at COVID vaccination are the lowest income counties and have the, the biggest concentrations of especially vulnerable people in terms of health. And 
um, we tend to think about in 2021, a lot of people tend to think about anyway, disability, uh, disabled people as, as being associated with not being employed. Um, but in the early 20th century, disabled people are who, people who we would call disabled today are widely employed. Um, there, and partly that's because injury is so common. So the, um, the statistics are not great, but one of the best estimates we have is that about one in 10 workers in the early 20th century will lose a body part at work during their working life at some point. So, um, and again, there's no support systems. So a lot of those people go back to work. And when I first started working on the project, um, early on when I was reading, as I talked about at the beginning, I was going to talk about women industrial workers. Um, and that was the whole project at the time. I would hear these stories of women in court saying, I lost a hand and I'll never work again. And being a product of the late 21st century, you know, the, of the early 21st century. And um, I was like, well, yeah, they'll never work again because you can't work without a hand, right? And then I found evidence later that you, you can operate a lot of machinery with one hand and a stump. And so actually a lot of these people were, were going back to work. So there's a lot of presence of disabled people uh, in workplaces. Um, and because in part, because work is disabling and poverty is disabling and um, over, over the long haul. And so, um, but the workers' comp legislation assumed uh, a person who was fully able-bodied. And I think that's partly, I, I don't know why that is. I have some hunches. I, one hunch is that legislation is probably written by people who are further up the food chain socially and who are less prone to the disabling kinds of processes that uh, kick in when you have less money and you have a more physically demanding job. And also I think that probably um, being disabled, uh, there's, there's additional kinds of gatekeeping that kick in about who can become a state senator. And probably it's much harder for a disabled person to become a state senator than an able-bodied person. And so I think there's ableism within, the, that's my, my, my suspicion, I can't prove it, um, but there's ableism in the, among the legis state legislatures. And so they write these laws that assume that, the, that, that a worker is not disabled. So um, there then become a series of lawsuits in the 1910s. Um, worker, the first Workers' Comp Act acts get passed at the state level in, in 1910. And by 1920, there's 40, 42 of the 48 states have them. So there's this decade of rapid legislative change. Um, and in that time period, um, there are incidents where like uh, a worker with one eye loses their only eye at work. And uh, the laws say uh, things like, if you lost one eye, you're partially disabled, you'll get um, money for 100 weeks. If you're blinded by an injury, you'll, you're totally disabled and you'll get money for 400 weeks. Well, someone who, and the implication is that those are mutually exclusive categories. You're either partially disabled or you're totally disabled. You'll either get 100 weeks or you'll get 400 weeks. But somebody who loses their only eye in an injury, uh, they fit both categories. And so, and the states go every which way on this. And some states say, yeah, you technically you're blinded, but you only lost one eye. So you won't, you're technically you're only partially disabled uh, for legal purposes. You only get 100, 100 weeks pay. And the fact that you're blind, you know, that's, we're sorry, that's too bad. Um, and then there's other states, which, you know, that's an atrocity. That, that, and that's tremendously discriminatory against people with disabilities. And, and courts do that in the early 20th century. Um, they just discriminate openly against people with disabilities like that. Then there are other courts in these lawsuits to say the one-eyed guy who lost an eye is clear. His only eye is clearly blinded that the statute clearly says the intent clearly is 
give the blind person the full amount of money. So they do that, which is a much more humane way to treat that person legally. But as I talk about in the book, that and over time, that second more humane treatment ex- expands and more states move in that direction. The more legally inclusive, legally humane response to what happens when a disabled person suffers a further disabling injury. But that has the effect of making an injury to a, a disabled person more expensive than an injury to an able-bodied person. So the one-eyed person who loses an eye is a more expensive injury than the two-eyed person who loses one eye. And um, as I said, with the, that third perspective on the reformers, um, large companies in this time period are very self-aware because of their HR departments and so on and their medical departments. And they are very, very risk-averse and cost-averse. And so they rapidly just start saying things like, you know, um, we're not going to hire those people anymore then. And um, so in a way, there's this terrible thing where there's this dilemma of the, the, the openly discriminatory, more ableist law. And there's some courts who say this. Uh, the Minnesota State Supreme Court says this in a decision, and the New York State Court of Appeals says this in a decision, um, that the more the the more formally legally discriminatory treatment the one-eyed guy who loses his eye gets less money promotes creates doesn't doesn't change the incentives that promotes the hiring of disabled people whereas the more formally legally inclusive um one-eyed guy who gets blinded gets gets the full amount of, of money for blindness that is the right thing to do and yet it creates this perverse incentive to fire people. And, um, and I was concerned in the book, and I don't want to just say, Hey, there's an incentive there for people to behave in light with the incentives. Cause I don't think people mechanically fi- follow incentives. So I looked a lot and I found a lot of evidence that em- employers saw the incentive and chose to act on it. Um, so that, that's what happened. And that's, that's one of the ramifications. And it's, um, I don't have the numbers because no one was tracking disability in the, in the workforce. So I can't tell you exactly how many people lost jobs, but I can tell you, I looked at the records of, of big companies and looked at lots of medical uh, professional records. And, and it's a widespread sense that people who used to be employable and fo- f- people who used to be basically within bounds for physically normal for employment, um, changed, um, the, the law changed around them. Like what, what's the quote? I think I can't remember who said it. It's a, it's a black freedom activist. There's kind of Plymouth rock, Plymouth rock landed on us. You know, there's this thing sometimes with Chicano people in the Southwest as well. Like our family lived here forever. And then the border changed around us. There's a similar thing with people with disabilities. Um, their bodies don't change. The law changes and the social and economic ramifications of their bodies change. And they become newly unacceptable because the standards of acceptability have shifted. Um, so that's one of the things I try to thematize in that section of the book. And when we're talking about, you know, the choices that go into creating these laws and how they affect people and individuals, and in this case, as we were talking about with disabled employees, um, sort of purposefully or, you know, unthinkingly leaving them out, excluding them. One of the things that I think most people today would just sort of think as natural um, when it comes to workers' comp and compensation laws is that the employers are the ones responsible for paying out um, lost wages, what have you. Uh, as you said with the example with your friend who was talking about, you know, the million dollars for eight people who die. Um, that's just a byline or a line in the budget for the company. And yet the choices that go into creating the, the compensation laws, as you show, 
um, put that on the employers, put that on businesses to provide for employees' injuries. And that in and of itself has a wide range of, of ramifications. And so what sort of ramifications do you look at in the in the book, in your study that sort of come out from these sort of conscious choices of putting this on the employers to pay? Yeah. So what I talk about in the book, so um, there are, there's, there's some ramifications and there's some second set of ramifications that amplify those. So um, the individual employer having to pay for injuries to that employer's employees, right? The, the steel mill paying for injured workers at that steel mill has a bunch of ramifications in that it sets a boundary around that steel mill um, and fosters gatekeeping, saying only no one-eyed people can come in anymore. Um, and so uh, the hope of some of the better reformers is that making the individual employer pay for injuries to their own employees will create incentives to promote safety. And there's some evidence that that happens, um, but not as much as we might think. Um, and But then there's also this incentive to discriminate because the, all the incentive really is, is control costs, right? It's just that if these things happen, you'll pay some money. So all employers are really thinking is, I don't want to pay this money. What can I do to reduce that cost? Um, and so what what I argue in the book is that this arrangement where employers, the individualization at the firm level, right? The individual employers pay leads to a kind of proliferation of borders around around workplaces that there's all these gaps then that disabled people get pushed into. And, um, and so anchoring it on the individual employer and, and anchoring it to their own behavior creates that kind of proliferation of gaps and, and, and cause for exclusion. Um, and there's some insurance theorists and some actuaries and so on who have a, who weigh in on this. Some of them in the early 20th century, some of them who are contemporary you know, 21st century thinkers who I, I engage on this. And basically they say that this kind of system is likely going to produce some kind of exclusion of any sort because commercial insurance is exclusionary from the beginning. And workers' comp organizes the response to injury on a commercial insurance basis. Um because um, insurers are not, they don't let everyone in. You know, it's not like in Britain, there's a national health service. You just have a right as a citizen to get health care. Um, there's not really the same kind of money to be made there. Um, whereas um, commercial insurance, there are the insurable and then the uninsurable or the uninsured. And so insurance principles draw lines within populations some people get included some people get excluded and so because it's on an insurance basis and an individualized basis some people just will get excluded like i said i engage some of the early 20th century insurance theorists and some 21st century insurance theorists to show that there's also a series of patterns that play out that intensify that dynamic and it goes back to those large um capital intensive very self-aware um manufacturing companies which is that there become a provision in um, in the law that says if you're a small company, you have to buy insurance to pay for workers' comp. Um, and, you know, it's like why we have to buy insurance on our cars in, in a lot of places. That um, If I hit someone with my car, I'm legally to, obliged to pay them. Um, but, you know, 
I don't have a lot of money in the bank. So if I like wreck someone's $100,000 Lamborghini, I don't have a hundred grand to pay for it. So if I have to pay out of pocket, that person just won't get paid. So that's why we have auto insurance. The insurance company guarantees that the injured party will get paid. So um, there's legislation that requires smaller employers to carry insurance to, to make sure that people will actually get paid for their injuries. Um, but big companies say, we don't need to buy insurance. We have a lot of money. We'll just set money aside. And they lobby. And it ends up, it's called, uh, quote unquote, self-insurance. And what it really is, is just not being insured um, and just saying, I'll put the money in the bank. Um, and that further individualizes things. Because if um, if I if I buy insurance, I'm sharing. So if I, I don't know how many people are in, uh, are in the, the risk pool in, in my, my medical insurance, but just to make up the number, if it's 10,000 people, um, every year there's a cost of medicine and a cost of operations and a cost of profits for the insurance company. And that's just averaged out. And then people pay a share of that average. And it's often individualized a little bit. Like if you're sick, you get a penalty basically. But but everybody in that pool, all of the people who pay premiums fund the whole enterprise. And there's a, there's a little bit of sharing that goes on in that. If um, And the same thing works with workers' comp insurance. So all these small enterprises are paying for each other's injuries a little bit through their workers' comp insurance payments. Um, and, and there's, to some degree, they, they might get a penalty if they pay more money, if they have more injuries, or they might not. There's some, some policy details on that that I won't get into. But with self-insurance, a self-insuring employer doesn't share any of that. They just put the money in the bank. They say, I'm only going to pay for my injuries. And, and they save like 50% or 30%. People calculate the numbers. So it's just, it's a cost savings to just put the money in the bank, not pay insurance premiums. You're not paying for the insurance company's advertising or their, uh, their CEO salary. You're not paying for your competitor's injuries. You're only paying for yours. And that further amplifies the scrutiny of who can get in the door because the, ins- the employer then knows exactly how much they paid for their own injuries. And they know to the penny how much the one-eyed man costs more to the company on an, in an injury, for an injury than um, the two-eyed man. And they become really, like, they really nickel and dime on this. You know, like a $3,000 is a lot of money to me, and in inflation-adjusted terms, it's, you know, it's a lot of money. It's like $60,000. But, you know, large, multi-million dollar companies will still say, like, hey, this is a three grand expense. Why did this happen? Um, and so that self-insurance provision, which is entirely about letting large manufacturers get out, get away cheaper, further intensifies the uh, incentive to discriminate. And I, again, I'm, the insurance theory from the early 21st, early 20th century and from today predicts that, but I didn't want to just rest on that prediction. I, I looked into it and I found over and over again, people saying this, and I found lots of big companies self-insured when they could, because it cost less. Um, and so that was the the, you asked me what was the ramification of individualizing, making individual employers pay. Was the ramification was exclusion and discrimination, and then there was this self insurance legislation that made the made that ramification that individualization even more intense. And this is an example of what you asked me at the very beginning about kind of abstractions. You know the the policy details of how insurance liabilities will or will not be funded sounds really dry and boring, and who would care about it? But it actually becomes part of the the set of incentives that dramatically intensify discrimination. It's actually behind this apparently bloodless abstract set of stuff is really um, a lot of really awful behavior that really harms a lot of people. So um, that, that was, you know, 
that's one of the examples of that, you know, injuries and abstractions. As you said, you asked me, what's the ramification of compensation laws? Um, there's this individualization that's built into workers' comp that's exclusionary. And then there's this second uh, set of legislation passed on so-called self-insurance, which doubles down on and intensifies the individualization and it um, amplifies exclusion. And um, I know we don't have a lot of time to get into it today, but the final chapter of the book is about industrial medicine. And um, they're basically doctors who work at big companies and they get tasked with responding to all this. And so they basically get told to identify all the people who we ought to fire and identify people who we should not hire. And so you have medical professionals who got into their career to help people and do good. And they end up being told that they have to discriminate. And uh, I look in closely at, at a, a physician who himself went deaf and who at the Pullman company. And he, he clearly regretted what he did. And uh, I spent a lot of time with his family papers and I got felt, felt like I got to know him to some extent in the way that we, to the limited degree, we can get to know a, a person through the archives. But I read stories that he wrote for his children. I read correspondence that he helped his children write to their aunts and stuff after their mother died. And, and he clearly did not feel good about what he did. And so uh, that's the way I tried to close the book is this, um, you know, the, my sympathies are with the people who really got injured and who got pushed out. But I also wanted to note that the um, the people who did all this were not like monsters exactly in the kind of cartoon villain way. A lot of them felt really bad about what they did. So that's an additional kind of ramification is you have people who are trying to do good in the world, forced to do really appalling things to other people, and some of them know it. And so that, that was an additional ramification. I tried to kind of end that final chapter on that note of like, um, you know, the, these are not cartoon villains doing all this awful stuff in some ways it's worse through people who some of them are really big hearted and who feel really terrible you know it doesn't matter in terms of what the effects are on the people they do this to but there's an additional form of misery that's generated and so we have this great book in front of us and i always encourage our listeners to become uh readers and pick up the book for themselves and once again nate holdren's injury impoverished workplace accidents capitalism and law and the progressive air so we have this in front of us what might we expect from you in the future and you know there's still a global pandemic come uh going on this book didn't come out that long ago uh if you want to say that you're taking a much needed break that is completely fine i mean I'm, I'm definitely slowing down but no i do i do have other things i want to write so um I the there, I'm a legal historian fundamentally, and there's a uh, in my field there's a thing called the legal history blog, and they in, sometimes invite authors who've recently published books to write kind of things in the vicinity of the book, kind of reflecting. So I wrote a series of essays on my own writing life. I got writer's block really badly while I was dissertating, and I've run writing groups and so on partly to avoid writer's block, um, and so I've written a series of essays on that, and um, a friend who was, has been part of a lot of those efforts with me, we want to eventually co-write a book that's kind of a partly, uh, you know, writing advice kind of book, but mostly just like a memoir of like, here's what our own lives were like as writers. And so um, kind of building on those essays and she's writing on, uh, her name's Emily Bruce. She's got a book on the history of childhood that's about to come out and she's writing a series of things now about her own writing life. So that's one thing is just writing. And, you know, like I said, I got writer's block bad, really badly for about six months. And that uh, I was hungry to read things that helped me. And so we wanted to both write the kinds of things that we were hungry to read ourselves. Um, so that's one. 
And then on a more kind of historical scholarship basis, um, I thought I was going to be done with injury. And then the pandemic happened and I felt like it was this kind of nightmare, like from a Kafka story where I fell asleep and woke up inside my book. Like, not that I'm the, not that I'm the real victim of the pandemic or whatever, but it was this, you know, we, we get really far into our own academic subjects to feel like no one else cares. And then it was suddenly like, I'm seeing my book in the, you know, I, I, I saw my book in the archives and, and I wrote about it. And now I feel like I'm seeing it every day in the news of the pandemic. And so I finished the book planning to be done writing on injury and just move into other stuff. But I'm actually, because the pandemic is putting this in my face so much, I, I have other things that I might want to write about, about the history of safety and injury. Um, but I also, in the main next project is uh, a thing about coal miners in Illinois and the development of labor law uh, up to the 1930s, which is when the, um, the system of labor law we have in place today really originates in 1935. But there's a number of experiments that happened beforehand. And um, I'm interested in the legal particulars of labor law. Um, and I also want to write a book that's a little more hopeful. So it'll, there'll be some strikes and some collective action. And you know, my, I, I, like, I like the book I've written, but it's a very dark book and a very, as I said at the beginning, a book about things falling short over and over again. So I'd like to write a book that's got a little more... You know, a little more light in it. You know, people people succeeding at least in a partial way, anyway, in in, in taking action collectively to improve their lives. So that's going to be the book uh, in some sense. I don't I don't I don't know exactly when it's going to begin and end. I know a lot of it will be on the eighteen nineties, nineteen tens, nineteen twenties. But uh, yeah, about how coal miners respond. Coal miners sort of generated experiments in in labor law, and then how those experiments in labor law shaped the forms of collective action they took. That's that's. Uh, that will be a future, a future book of mine. Well, I'm sure when those come out, we will have you right back onto the program. But in any case, uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. This has been really nice. It's nice to get to talk with you.